the masters almost surely have a plan This clearly may be something near beyond the realm of man And until you thoroughly tested every last post just That's true, Dr. Sayers. Very well. Where would we be without THC? Because we know they're lying to us, just don't know to what degree. Yeah, where would we be without THC? The highest side chat show, Greg Carwood Company. All right, higher side chatters. Anyone who's been a fan of conspiracy lore has seen quite a few explosive stories over the years, from deep state sagas like the Philadelphia Experiment and Montauk Project to the Roswell Crash and Operation High Jump, and it's hard to know exactly where the truth lies in these tales, but it's obvious that there's a lot going on behind the scenes, and we are stuck grasping at the few straws that have wiggled loose from the nefarious elite's nearly ironclad quarantine. Well, I hope you're hungry for it, people, because today we're taking a big, hearty bowl of that oh-so-good conspiracy soup with generous portions of both education and speculation cooked up by today's guest, Tim Swartz. Tim is an Emmy Award-winning television producer, videographer, and the author or co-author of many, many books with titles like The Lost Journals of Nikola Tesla, Evil Agenda of the Secret Government, Time Travel, A How-To Guide, Richard Shaver, Reality of the Inner Earth, Admiral Byrd's Secret Journey Beyond the Poles, and Evil Empire of the ETs and the Ultra-Terrestrials, just to name a few. And with titles like that, you know we're going to have a good time. So let's get this party started. A legend in his own right, the Casey Kasem of Conspiracy Classics. Tim, my man, welcome to the higher side. Why, thank you very much, Greg. It's a pleasure to be with you today. (laughs) Yeah, man. As I mentioned, you've written or been a part of too many great books to name, and I've heard you talk about even more during radio appearances, and to me, you and the guys you write with, the crew you run with, represent kind of the old-school researchers that really introduced me to a lot of these conspiracy staples and stories on Coast to Coast in those early years and in your writing, but I am really psyched to have you here. And to kick this off, everyone here knows I really love the Hollow Earth idea and the possibility of inner Earth civilizations. (laughs) Of course, you wrote Admiral Byrd's Secret Journey Beyond the Poles, which is a book of yours I've spent probably the most time with, but it is about so much more than just the Admiral Byrd story. Of course, that is a good one, but there's actually a huge corpus of material and stories and mythologies from around the world related to inner worlds, and this hollow earth idea doesn't just rely on Operation High Jump, does it? No, definitely not. And that's what I was commissioned to write the Admiral Byrd book. I really felt It would have been remiss not to also go into the whole Hollow Earth mythology because the idea that there is another world beneath our feet has been with us in myths and legends probably from the very beginning. You know, if you look at practically any society and civilization's creation myths, They have people either coming from the stars or coming from underneath the earth, from caves or holes or something along those lines. So when it comes to the hollow earth mythologies, they play an important factor within our really how we developed as humans. It plays an important role just as much as the idea that you know, we were brought here by aliens from other planets. Mm-hmm. 
And yeah, and when you dig into it, you know, a lot of bright minds have considered that the Earth could be hollow. In your book, you mentioned 17th century astronomer and mathematician Sir Edmund Halley, who calculated the orbit of Halley's Comet. Mm -hmm. Also, German scientist Athanasius Kircher would be another one. Is there anything else we could say about bright minds who found this possibility worth exploring or had this belief? Well, you know, you have to understand also that in the times of, say, like Halley, when he was working on his concept, and his concept was that the Earth was almost like uh, Russian nesting dolls. It had spheres within spheres within spheres. Mm -hmm. These were the early days of geology and trying to understand, you know, how the Earth was made up. Here in modern times, we have, you know, supposedly, you know, I mean, I'll have to take their word for it, a better understanding on how the Earth is made up. Just the fact that they're able now to use earthquakes to determine what certain layers of the planet are made up of, you know, it's just, it's absolutely fascinating. So when you look back at some of these early conceptions of the Earth and the possibility that it could be hollow, you know, like I said before, you have to take into mind that we didn't have a really great understanding of just, you know, how planets were formed and how our planet is made up. But I need to point out also, Greg, that, I mean, you know, by no means do we have a perfect understanding of what's underneath our feet. I mean, you know, we've got a kind of a general idea, but we've never been able to go much further than, say, gosh, I think maybe, you know, three to five miles, I think, is the deepest that we have managed to dig down. So there's still a lot of unknown factors when it comes to understanding, uh, you know, what's what's inside our planet. Mm -hmm. Good points. And also, it's fair to say that what's known isn't necessarily what's given out to the masses either. <laughs> oh, well, that's, you know, that's true. You know, when I first became interested in the whole hollow earth mythology, you know, I mean, gosh, I think that that was one of the one of the first things I really, you know, became interested in besides, say, you know, like UFOs and, you know, ghosts and things like that. One of the first books I ever bought, you know, just wildly enough, happened to be a book written by Timothy Green Beckley, hmm. who I work with quite a bit now. And his book was about the Hollow Earth and the Richard Shaver Dero Mysteries. Hmm. And so, I mean, you know, I got off to a rich start, <laughs> you know, on, on this kind of stuff really early on and you know the concept that the planet is hollow say like an eggshell that we live on you know the surface and then the crust is maybe 500 to a thousand miles thick and then the rest of it is hollow with maybe a sun in the center and continents and water and you know people and animals living on the inside I'm less inclined now to believe that, hmm. but more inclined to accept the idea that the Earth is a crisscross at various levels with tunnels and vast caverns and you know things like that, more along the lines of, say, like Journey to the Center of the Earth by Jules Verne, rather than, and I don't know if you're familiar with these books, but Edgar Rice Burroughs, you know, the guy who wrote Tarzan, he wrote a series of adventure books called the uh, Pellucidar series. And his Pellucidar is, you know, the old concept, like I was just talking about, of a hollow earth. 
There's a sun in the center, and there's, you know, people in prehistoric animals living there, and there are openings in the North and South Poles that people can get in and out. And if you ever read these books, I... <laughs> yeah, yeah, some of them. Yeah, I highly recommend them. I highly recommend your listeners read them as well, because he really, I mean, obviously, Burroughs did his research for his days. I think these books were written in like, you know, like maybe the 1920s, 1930s, that sort of thing. So, I mean, all of the myths and legends about the hollow earth are included in his books and, and are really, you know, just a good treaty to read if you want to know about some of these early 20th century ideas of the hollow earth. Mm-hmm. You know, since I went off on a wild ramble here, you know, you said whether or not some of this knowledge about a hollow earth may be kept secret from us, you know, that is a possibility. I do think that it is being kept from us that there are underground areas that, you know, more along the lines, like I said, of tunnels and vast caverns. Some of them may actually have people living there that broke away from the human race a long time ago and kind of created their own civilization. You know, maybe people that are basically, you know, homo sapiens or maybe cousins, you know, still within the, you know, hominid line, but not quite, you know, homo sapiens sapiens like we are. You know, uh, information like that, yes, definitely, I think is probably being kept secret from us. Mm -hmm. Really, the most exciting thing about the hollow earth idea is just the idea that there's unexplored lands or unknown peoples on the earth or in the earth that we don't know of. So. Yeah, I'm pretty impartial to if it's uh, more like a giant ant farm or an actual hollow cavity, but I still do hold out hope for that hollow cavity thought. I mean, I guess they say when John Quincy Adams was president, he got really swept up in the idea, and apparently he approved an expedition to explore the inner earth, and some say that was a major reason he only served one term because other people weren't necessarily on board. Congress wasn't on board, but I've also been told the Smithsonian... They say its original mission statement was related to displaying artifacts from this expedition that they say, you know, never happened. So I guess it played a pretty decent role in people's minds in the past. And uh, I also tend to think, like, what's true for one celestial body should be true for all of them to an extent. And uh, when they crashed that thing into the moon, it rang like a bell. And apparently Mars moon Phobos seems to be hollow and there is speculation that both of those things could just be ancient alien space bases, so maybe they aren't necessarily uh, <laughs> satellites or celestial bodies like the rest of them, but they are intriguing ideas. Well, that you have to take into consideration, is the moon a natural object? Right. <laughs> because there's, you know, there's been talk for a long time, considering how large the Earth's moon is in comparison to other moons and their planets. You know, of course, Jupiter has moons that are you know, almost as big as, you know, some of our smaller planets. But, you know, you look at the size in comparison to Jupiter and these moons, and the Earth-Moon system is just wildly out of proportion mm-hmm. in comparison with the rest of the solar system. I mean, it's almost a binary planet system. If the orbits were a little bit different, it would be a binary planet system. But the idea that the moon is hollow was brought about by 
several Russian astronomers back in the early 1960s. And then when you have, like you said, when they crash some of the spent boosters from the Saturn V rockets onto the surface of the moon, it did seem to indicate that there's something unusual about the composition of the moon. You know, possibly, <laughs> you know, some people have said that the moon was actually like a giant spaceship, right? That brought us here to this planet from someplace else, you know, or maybe it's a death, you know, like a spent death star. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Yeah, I don't necessarily believe that concept, but, you know, considering how unusual the moon is in comparison with the other moons in the solar system, the way that it is perfectly set up that when it crosses the disk of the sun, it creates a perfect solar eclipse. I mean, things like that, to me, seem to be beyond coincidence. Right. It seems to be planned. For what reason? I don't know. But that's just one of many, you know, examples that, you know, that I have found over the years concerning, you know, our planet, uh, the moon, other planets, universe in, in general, that makes me think that there's more going on than a lot of our scientists are, are letting on. Possibly, you know, they don't realize it themselves because most scientists nowadays are materialist and anything that seems to counteract that idea, they're naturally going to shut down and not listen to it. And of course, any, any of these scientists who are interested in this kind of stuff, they kind of treat it like a hobby and don't tell anybody else about it. Because, boy, that's a great way to lose your tenure or any future funding if your peers ever find out that you're interested in, you know, some of this uh, fringe material, so to speak. Yes. Cheers to that. And it is tough to know exactly what elements to put stock into, but it does seem a lot of the time like we are just living on one of the gears of the great cosmic grandfather clock. And... um you also mentioned in the book Marshall B. Gardner. He's a scientist who spent two decades studying the Aurora Borealis, and he said he was convinced that it came from light from inside the Earth. I think that is a provocative clue. Of course, the poles are fairly heavily guarded, and you know there's all that speculation that we can't get there, we can't actually see holes, but we can see the Aurora Borealis, and it is interesting. Do you put any stock in that idea, or not so much? Not so much. I mean, I, I do accept the conventional idea that the aurora borealis is, you know, the result of solar winds interacting with the Earth's magnetic field. However, there was an interesting picture that came out a few years ago of Antarctica. And this was a satellite picture, and it seemed to show the southern lights coming out of what appeared to be a rather large opening not quite as large as, say, like a polar opening has been supposed by theorists on the hollow Earth, but still, you know, like a large cave. And it seemed to show this electrified light coming out of it. So hmm. whether or not it's a situation where you're seeing, you know, say, like an inner sun being reflected off of the polar ice, you know, something like that is probably a little simplistic, I think. However, considering the way that the planet is wrapped with 
all kinds of electrical fields, fields of radiation, and things like that. If you do have openings of some kind that lead into the interior of the planet, more than likely you're going to find that these lines of force will also, you know, move in and out of these openings. And of course, when you have these highly magnetic and electrified fields of force surrounding the planet, any interaction with the sun and other cosmic forces is going to create different kinds of lighting patterns, whether it's, you know, like the electrified uh, gases, like the aurora borealis, or something along those lines of fields of radiation even. So, I mean, I think that it is a possibility, but the idea that, you know, like I said, like the inner sun is reflecting off the ice, that is probably less likely than, you know, uh, some of these other ideas that I just <laughs> uh, put forth. Fair enough. Well, you're speaking my language. And I also wanted to ask you about this person, Dr. Wendy Lockwood. She wrote a piece that is actually chapter nine in your book. And one provocative quote from that chapter is where she says that, NASA certainly knows about the northern entrance to the hollow earth, and I suspect HARP may be directed at seeking ways to penetrate those inner worlds, which is a provocative idea. I never considered that HARP could somehow be related. A lot of people also, especially in the legends and the mythology, consider anything under the umbrella inner earth. They consider it almost like a more of a spiritual place of, of some type, mm -hmm. but I just thought that was really interesting. I've heard a lot of thoughts about what HARP could be, never have I heard it, you know, talked about in that way? But I also bring her up because I went to her website and there isn't really a ton there except for a few articles and a logo that looks a lot like many Secret Society logos, but it has a hollow earth on it. And it says, contact Dr. Wendy Lockwood if you'd like to know more about the Web of Light Mystery School. And the, the site seemed like it was connected to yours or Timothy Beckley's site, but it's just super provocative to me. Can you tell us anything more about her or this mystery school in particular? Uh, yes. Well, I should say that Dr. Lockwood, I haven't heard from her in quite a while. Gosh, I mean, I think the last time that I spoke with her was probably about five or six years ago. And at that time, she was not in the best of health. So, you know, I mean, I, I, I don't want to go on the air and say that she has possibly passed on. Because I don't know that for sure, but you know that could be the situation. Right. And, and you're absolutely correct. Dr. Lockwood used to be a writer for Tim Beckley. She wrote articles for his old magazines and some chapters for some of his early books. And her teachings are more along the metaphysical lines. And her ideas of, say, like a hollow earth and places you know, like that tend to be, her idea is that they tend to be more on a spiritual or other dimensional realm. She thinks that there are physical entrances to the hollow earth, but that after you go, say, like a certain distance, then you actually are no longer in this sphere of reality, that, you know, you're in a different plane of existence. And she speculates that, you know, like all planets 
in our solar system, or not, not just our solar system, but probably throughout the universe, maybe operate along, along the same ways, that there is a connection to these other spheres of reality through these underground entrances. Almost to the point where, say, like, if you would go to, say, Mars and would find one of these underground entrances, you would go basically to the same reality as you would if you found the same type of cave entrance on the planet Earth. It's almost like, you know, every portion of the real universe, the physical universe, no matter where you are, that there are entrances to these other dimensional states of reality anywhere that you go in this universe, you would end up in the same place. I don't know if I'm making myself clear or not. Yeah. Portals, basically. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. That's that's basically that's basically it. But you know, it's uh, uh, you would just you know, no matter where you would go in this universe, you would always emerge in the same place in whatever these other dimensional realms are. So you know, I mean, it's an interesting theory, and it's another aspect of this that is interesting, in my opinion, is that, and and I don't know if you're familiar with this writer, but there was a guy by the name of T. Lobsang Rampa who wrote a number of books about Tibet and Tibetan mysticism, hmm. especially back in the 1950s. And, you know, he continued to write into the 1960s as well. But he claimed that he lived as a Buddhist monk. I mean, he was born in, in Tibet and was brought into... Uh, like a secret society? Well, no, it's not, I mean, it's, you know, like a part of Tibetan Nepalese Buddhist tradition, mm. but it goes a lot deeper into the mystical aspects of this Eastern philosophy. And one of the things that he wrote about was that he was taken into a cavern system in the Himalayas and was taken into basically, you know, the hollow earth or some of these huge tunnel cavern systems to the underground civilization of Agartha, which is, you know, like supposedly where like the great masters of the world reside. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, these are the immortal masters of the planet that, I mean, you know, basically they, they know all and see all and, and that sort of thing. The interesting part of this was that at one point he came to a portal of light and was asked to step into it. And when he did, he found that he was on another planet or another reality. You know, I mean, it's difficult to discern just exactly where he was, but he didn't feel like that he was on planet Earth anymore, but he felt that he was in a place that was connected to all the planets and, you know, all the physical realms on planet Earth, that they all led to this one kind of like, you know, super mystical location. And he was basically told by these highly evolved beings. I mean, these beings were evolved to the point where they no longer had physical bodies. They were basically just like globes of light, just, you know, like hyper intelligence. And they were told that it was mankind's function to eventually evolve to become like our concept of angels. And that our destiny would be to evolve into kind of like the state that these beings were into, almost beings of pure energy, 
and that it would be our task to bring other life forms and intelligences to the same point, and that every intelligent species in this universe, our ultimate destiny is to lead others into this higher state of being, which would then, you know, supposedly bring the completion of, you know, whatever the creative force of the entire multiverse is. <laughs> that we're all just kind of like sparks off of this creative force and that our goal is to, you know, help these other life forms to to achieve the same goal. So, I mean, you know, Rampa's story sounds very much like Dr. Lockwood's ideas. And of course, you know, Dr. Lockwood, I mean, she says that there are physical underground locations, say under Mount Shasta, mm -hmm. that there's an actual underground city there that was built a long time ago by remnants of you know, what we would call Lemuria, you know, which would be the Pacific version of Atlantis. Mm -hmm. That was a civilization that uh, supposedly existed, you know, a number, you know, maybe a million or so years ago, but then for one reason or another sank into the ocean. And then the remnants of that civilization, you know, scattered across the globe and uh, kind of seeded, you know, helped seed civilization from their knowledge. And one of these remnant cities is under Mount Shasta, you know, which is now in California. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I love it. That's a, a, a great breakdown. And another story from the book that is kind of related to this that I was completely unfamiliar with. Apparently, this guy... Pythias, this Greek geographer from around 333 BC, mm -hmm. apparently he sailed north as far north as he could through what he called the, quote, congealed seas. And he discovered a land he called Thule or Thule, you know, just like the old Nazi occultist society. But he right. said that the people there showed him the place where the sun goes to sleep. And he wrote about the landscape as a place where land, properly speaking, no longer existed nor air or water, but a mixture of these things, as if it was like a marine lung in which all matter is in suspension, as if this something was a link between all these elements on which one could not walk or sail. And that's a hell of a story, man. And it kind of relates to that model you were just describing. Yeah, it, it really does. And modern historians, I mean, they have no doubt that this guy actually existed because of the time... And you have to realize, of course, that his writings no longer exist, but he was written about by his skeptics. You know, the people who lived in his time when he came back and told his stories, you know, uh, he, he basically was ridiculed and his skeptics wrote about it. Yeah, you know, here's the crazy stories that this guy told us, you know, that, that sort of thing. But if you go and kind of strip away the archaic writing, and ideas that they had at the time, he basically was probably one of the first in, you know, like a Greek or Western, you know, early Western society to discover the northern polar regions. Naturally, I mean, you know, you had the natives who lived up there, but, you know, they didn't communicate very much, say, like with the ancient Greeks or anybody like that. Right. So, so when he went past the British Isles, and sailed further north, you know, he discovered there was icebergs floating around and that the days grew shorter. And, you know, he got to the point where during the Arctic winter, you know, the sun, either it never rose or it just 
I think he reported that it actually just kind of like went along the horizon. It never got very high up. It just kind of rolled along the horizon and then went back down again. And then during the Arctic summer, it never set. And so when he came back with these stories, everybody made fun of him. You know, like, ah, yeah, right. You know, <laughs> you, you obviously were, you know, were, were drinking too much or, you know, or whatever. <laughs> but he did, like you said, you know, he brought back the story of the land of Thule. And if you, you know, look at some of these other mythologies, especially, you know, say like German mythology, says a lot about Thule, and then some of the more northern races that live, say, like in you know Norway and Finland, and you know even some of the ancient peoples that live in Siberia, they have these similar stories of a land that exists extremely far north to the point where it almost seems like it's no longer part of the regular planet. The Inuits of North America. You know, their creation mythology has it that they came from a land from the far north where the sun never set and it was always warm and there was an abundance of, you know, food and it was just really a pretty nice environment, which always makes me wonder why in the heck did they leave, <laughs> you know, to, to then live in, you know, Arctic wastelands, so to speak. But if you look at, gosh, like almost any of these peoples, that live in the far northern climates, they all have very similar stories of originally coming from a land of perpetual daylight and a lot warmer conditions than they live, live in now. Which, you know, again, that goes back to this whole idea of the hollow earth with the center sun, because, you know, if you have a sun that is suspended gravitationally in the center of the planet, it's never going to set. You know, so you're going to be living in a place where it's, you know, perpetual daylight mm -hmm. and probably a tropical environment where, you know, it, it's always warm, you know, until you start getting to the more northern areas of the sphere or north or south regions. There's a gentleman by Dr. Brooke Agnews. Yes. He has done some really excellent research, I think, on this whole idea. And, you know, science postulates that the core of the planet is made up of, you know, like a highly compressed nickel and steel and iron to the point where it's almost a completely different element because it's just so condensed by the pressures of the planet. And Dr. Agnew, I mean, you know, he suggests that the interior of the planet could be hollow and that this nickel iron core of the planet the science, you know, scientists love to talk about could actually be this internal sun, and that there is a pretty good-sized cavity at the center of the planet, but that, you know, our, our seismic readings that we use to deduce what the interior of the planet is made of is partially in error because, I guess, as he puts it, some of these seismic readings, the evidence that they come out with seem uh, the the same type of material that they postulate is in the you know like the center of the planet could also be statistically shown to be an open area rather than a crustal formation before you get to the iron core so he says that 
the evidence shows that it could be, you know, one way or the other. And, and of course, naturally, he likes to think that it shows that there's a hollow cavity. Down there. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> but, Brooks is great. He was a, a previous guest, one of my favorites to talk about Hollow Earth. But sorry, go ahead. No, 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 no. Yeah, he. I mean, he, he's a great guy. You know, he's done some really good research along these lines. And so I was just going to add that, you know, naturally, you know, I've never been down there. <laughs> so, you know, I can't say for sure one way or the other. That's true. You know, I just offer the theories and my own, you know, ideas based on these theories. And I always leave it up to the you know readers or listeners to make up their own minds of the matter. You know, maybe one of these days, if we are able to get down there, we'll be able to prove it one way or the other. Hopefully, mm -hmm. you know. <laughs> That's the way to do it. Mm -hmm. And you were talking about legends and even the legend of Santa Claus comes from Scandinavia. And this idea that a man comes from the North Pole and brings gifts or supplies in the harshest of winter environments i mean that's the story that's santa we've turned it into a materialism consumer fest with all these uh gifts that came from dear old saint nick but the story itself is kind of in that vein of a guy coming from the northernmost point the pole perhaps from inside and uh bringing supplies i don't know it's it's definitely interesting because so many of the legends of indigenous people who talk about another type of being it's always about some kind of helper in most cases like some kind of being that came and led them down into the earth during a cataclysm or brought supplies so i just think that is an interesting part of modern culture that kind of harkens back to that idea well yeah and you can you know you can take that a step further because the old stories of saint nicholas he had his companion krampus that came with him mm -hmm. and you know krampus was always described as being almost like a demonic type of entity and that's one of the other factors of the whole hollow inner earth stories is that not only do you have races that live down there that are spiritually more developed than we are but it's also the abode of you know like devils and demons and creatures of the netherworld mm -hmm. the whole richard shaver dero stories goes in that direction i mean you know the deros are basically the modern day equivalent of the devils and demons that love to torment us so yes you're absolutely right i mean it's it's very interesting how a lot of these mythologies are still with us today albeit though in a kind of like a sweetened fairy tale <laughs> types of versions right but like the modern fairy tales you know if you go and trace them back you know you'll find that they have some realities to them and oftentimes maybe not quite so pleasant realities <laughs> yeah man and antarctica is another thing we were going to talk about because it is the most underexplored place on the planet really if you discount the oceans and you'd really drown in red tape and regulation trying to get there. And it's been in a lot of alternative news lately. The Russian patriarch, the secretary of state and Buzz Aldrin all invited down there recently to look at something. Uh, what are your thoughts on the story there? What do you think could be at the heart of this kind of provocative mystery? It's really been interesting over the past year or so how much attention has suddenly been given to Antarctica. You know, like you said, I mean, you had uh, former Secretary of State John Kerry and Apollo 11 astronaut Buzz Aldrin going down there. You had Prince Harry. Did he go down there? Yes. I mean, yeah. and then, of course, you know, Admiral Byrd, 
back in the 20th century, the Patriarch of Moscow, like you said. You know, what, what is going on down there? Boy, and we can just speculate as much as you want to. And a lot of people have. Well, you go on the internet and Google up Antarctic mysteries. And man, you've got everything from the Nazi secret base to, you know, like I said, the hollow earth. I was on a show a couple of months ago and the host of that show, you know, he had a really interesting idea and we talked about it quite a bit. And it was his idea that, you know, the Russians have been drilling into that lake, uh, Lake Vostok, yeah. that has been covered in ice for, you know, millions of years and basically sealed up whatever had been around in our environment at the time that it was finally covered over with ice. And it was his speculation that possibly that they discovered in that lake a life form that, for all intents and purposes, would be uh, uh, extraterrestrial. And what I mean by life form, I mean, you know, more along the lines of, say, like bacteria or virus mm -hmm. or, you know, not, uh, yeah, <laughs> you know, not like an ancient astronaut still swimming around under <laughs> there in a spacesuit, but something more along the lines of an ancient ancestor of ours. But this ancient ancestor, you know, didn't originate on planet Earth. This, whatever this life form was, we are its descendants. Uh, like it was a remnant of panspermia or something. Exactly, exactly. Around the time that this lake was covered over and that Antarctica found its way to where it was, because you have to realize that at one time, Antarctica was not located at the South Pole. I'm not quite sure where it was. I mean, it was it was definitely closer to the equator at one time. So it had more of a tropical environment. And, you know, at some time in our ancient past, there was some kind of event. Nobody really knows for sure what happened, where basically, you know, almost all life forms on this planet were killed. And that included the majority of undersea life forms as well. And then after a relatively short period of time you know, in, in geological history, there was a sudden explosion of life that came out of the seas. But this life was extremely bizarre. It didn't really resemble the previous life forms on the planet before whatever this cataclysmic event was. Which has led some, you know, scientists to speculate that this new life form, and when I say new life form, it was the seed that, that we're all descended from. You know, every, you know, all the life on the planet now descended from this new, rather bizarre forms of life that emerged after this cataclysmic event. Some scientists have speculated that this was a cosmic event, you know, like possibly say, like, another sun came close to the edge of our solar system and disturbed the Oort cloud, sending comets racing into the interior of the solar system and then bombarding, you know, Earth, Mars, Venus, everything. And that at that time, Mars probably had life on it. I mean, we know that it had an ocean and an atmosphere and that when these comets bombarded Mars, they blasted off chunks of the planet which then fell to Earth. I mean, we know that that's true because we have found Martian meteorites in Antarctica. You know, they stand out very clearly. Of course, this is from, you know, later events. So it could be that the new life that arose on Earth 
came from Mars and that we are the Martians, so to speak. Yeah. <laughs> and this was the idea that this one person, you know, suggested to me, which, you know, like, that's pretty good, pretty good idea because, I mean, I do, I do believe in panspermia, you know, like you said, the idea that the universe is teeming with life and that it's probably constantly, you know, raining down on us from outer space in one form or another. And the idea that we evolved from some of these early dustings of life is not too far-fetched to me. And considering how long that Antarctica has been frozen over, and with the warming of our climate and the melting of the Antarctic ice, some of these primitive life forms may be coming out and being revealed, which could be why the sudden interest in Antarctica and why some of these people are going down there to check this out, you know, I mean, hey, come come and look at your great, 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 great granddaddy. He's down here. <laughs> yeah, man, I, I love it. it. It also kind of could give some clues as to why a lot of these people are ending up sick. There was a Lockheed Martin guy who got sick. There was also, of course, Buzz Aldrin. But right in the same vein, I, I took this down from Joseph Farrell's website, but he wrote about this recently saying, as if it couldn't possibly get any stranger, there were also these stories several years ago that the Russians had found something near their installations at the vast under-ice lake, Vostok, where there, there were emergency evacuations at the time of people becoming suddenly sick. Perhaps the weirdest of all the stories was that the Saudis found something during an excavation around the Grand Mosque at Mecca, something which so terrified them that they turned it over to the Russians, who promptly, so the story goes, took it to Antarctica, where Patriarch Kirill performed ancient rituals over it. So that is provocative, of course, and it's just like what you were saying, something under Lake Vostok, possibly a, a, an ancient virus of some type, or maybe some type of ancient technology that is giving off some type of radiation, because if it's just a virus, I don't know you know, why John Kerry and Buzz Aldrin need to go look at it unless it might be something a little more epic to the eye. Yeah, you know, all of those stories with the exception of the Saudis discovering something because I don't think that they would be too inclined to give whatever they discovered to the rest the of Christians, us. Christians. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, the, you know, the rest of us infidels, so, yeah, so, yeah. Uh, so to speak, you know, unless they just gave it to the... Yeah. Uh, but then again, why would they, why would they give it to, you know, to, to the Russians? If it was discovered, say, like in Syria or, you know, like, uh, one of these countries that is on a more friendly term with Russia, because <laughs> Saudi Arabia, you know, is more friendly with the United States. Right. But, yeah, it's, you know, it's like I, it's like I said earlier, Antarctica has not always been covered with ice. Right. And in fact, a number of writers have speculated that Antarctica may have been the location of what we would call Atlantis. Right. You know, now, you know, some kind of antediluvian civilization that really existed long before modern civilization. And it's, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to say since it's now covered in, you know, almost a mile, in most places, you know, a mile thick ice sheet. But again, like I said, with the climate changing and Antarctica melting, as fast as it has, it could very well be that some of the remnants of a lost civilization, and when I say a lost civilization, I mean a civilization 
that existed, you know, more than a million years ago, long before the last ice age. I mean, I, I couldn't tell you offhand how long Antarctica has been in its current location, but it's been, you know, several million years at least. Mm -hmm. So if they have uncovered remnants of some kind of, uh, of, of lost civilization in that location, you know, we're talking about a civilization that existed supposedly long before modern man was even a gleam in a chimpanzee's eyes. <laughs> <laughs> right. And if you go into the ancient aliens idea, I mean, people in that camp believe that something intelligent made us. So clearly there's some kind of intelligence, perhaps in the background, way before us. Well, you know, if there was going to be the remnants of an ancient civilization, Antarctica really is one of the best locations since it's been frozen for such a long period of time. I mean, all across the planet, you know, we've seen possibly hints of remnants of some kind of civilization that existed before the last ice age. But naturally, you know, due to erosion and other aspects, you know, most of that has long since disappeared. However, Antarctica you know, being basically, you know, frozen in stasis for so long a time, I mean, this really would be an excellent location to find remnants, you know, if they actually existed of a previous, possibly higher technological civilization that lived on this planet before we did. I mean, I, I am a firm believer that we are not the only a technologically advanced civilization that has existed on this planet. I think that humans are probably a lot older than archaeologists give us credit for. Yeah. We're just now really discovering how many subspecies of humans have existed over the millennials. I mean, you know, we just we just recently discovered the Denisovians. You know, it uh, apparently seems to be an offshoot of the Neanderthals. I mean, we had no idea they existed, but once we discovered that little tiny finger bone in a cave in Siberia and got the DNA out of it, you know, we discovered that there are still peoples, you know, on this planet that have the genetic leftovers from this race, you know, still in our genetic makeup. So, I mean, it's, to me, it's not inconceivable that humans or, or human subspecies arose a lot longer on this planet, you know, back that we care to, to think about. And that Homo sapiens sapiens is just really, I mean, we're just, a, we're just newcomers. Who knows what kind of, and I'm going to say a hominid, you know, because I guess I'm a little biased along <laughs> those lines. <laughs> but I suppose it's not inconceivable that other intelligent species could have evolved on this planet long before we did that weren't necessarily hominids. I know a lot of people will be like, ah, oh, it's just crazy talk. But, <laughs> you know, I mean, given the way that time works and that evolution works and the whole creative process in life works, I mean, it's not inconceivable that some of the first intelligent technological-based civilizations on this planet may not necessarily have been human as we think of humans. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, it's very, very conceivable. And of course, the further you go back, there's going to be diminishing returns for what you can actually unearth. So who knows how far back things go. And another great story you wrote about in the details of that book is uh, the caves in Malta. 
And I found that so interesting. Can you tell us about what was found when they followed these caves and tunnels down as far as they did? Oh, oh gosh, I think you'll have to. I think you'll have to remind me. I I can I can. So you know you have to realize, Greg, that a lot of these books. I mean, I write them, and then you know I go on to you know like different books. So I may not remember all the details. Of course. Well, apparently some men were digging a well, fell into the earth, found a cave system that opened up into multiple chambers, and they found that it was underneath a Neolithic village. And based on the stone carvings at the entrance to this lower section, once they got down in there, they believed that occasionally a human sacrifice was chained to the entrance every so often. I guess there's some kind of indications of that. But then down even deeper, they cleared out 30,000 skeletons from a passageway Mm. and found old cave art murals behind them. And deeper still, you find what was called the Oracle, a hole in the wall that when you would speak into it, it carried your voice throughout all of these caves. And the theory was that someone was using this uh, amplification to maybe scare the villagers into offering sacrifices or maybe tell them when they needed to bring one, otherwise they were going to have trouble. But if you go even further down from there, there was another room that had a stone altar in the center and beds carved into the walls. And in these little bed sections were little uh, enclaves where people's heads would go or their feet would go. And the indications was that these beans were four feet tall or some even smaller. And then it opens up into natural caves, which nobody knows how far that goes. But I thought that was a pretty amazing story. I even looked up pictures of the Maltese cave art. And yeah, it's really interesting. And it almost is a parallel story to the idea of fairy folk underground or some kind of smaller being underground like coming up and stealing people and maybe they worked out some kind of king kong arrangement where they just give them a person once in a while to save themselves the trouble but i love that story well and malta is also the location of some very interesting roadways that seem to go out into the water they start out on the land and then end going out into the ocean. So either these were boat docks of some kind, though it's it's unusual because these roads would also crisscross the island and then eventually, you know, lead out into sea, you know, leading some people to speculate that Malta is what's left of a larger land, you know, again, harking back to the Atlantis idea. And of course, I mean, you know, we give the idea of Atlantis anymore to really any kind of, of land that has sunk beneath the ocean. But if you look, I mean, you'll see that all across the globe, there's indications of this, that what now may be nothing more than just a little island, you know, poking out from the ocean at one time used to be something that was a landmass that was a lot larger. But the whole Malta cavern situation is something that you'll also see in other locations around the globe, I mean, there are almost almost exactly the same types of situations where you'll have layer upon layer of caverns, with the oldest ones being the deepest. And some of these deepest caverns seem to show some kind of human or, or whatever type of activity, possibly even, you know, before the last ice age, which, you know, again, according to modern science, before that, I mean, humans were really nothing more than just brutes running around knocking each other in the head with rocks. No way 
having the sophistication to to carve out these sophisticated cavern systems that we're finding, you know, not, again, not only in Malta, but in, but in other locations. And, you know, you pointed out the idea that these caverns were acoustically perfect to the point where at, uh, at a secret location, you could talk quietly and it would echo throughout the entire system, almost like like a prehistoric PA system. There's other locations, you know, there is a location in New England. I think it's in the American Stonehenge where they have found some of these underground structures that if you go to a certain location and speak quietly, your voice can be heard throughout this limited area. Again, where it seems to be that, you know, you had somebody like maybe a, uh, like a priest system that would guide the population, you know, for one reason or the other by pretending to be, you know, spirits or gods or, or what have you. And that, that seems to be the situation that was going on in Malta. You know, some have speculated that you have these ancient locations, say like Malta or Egypt or, or even this fairly recently discovered location in Turkey, you know, where they've discovered these really sophisticated megalithic structures and carvings that, that go really to the very, you know, it seems to be the very beginning of mankind and even a little bit past from what we thought we knew, where there seems to have been maybe an outside influence going on from, you know, and again, I mean, you know, you have the ancient astronaut theorists who say that extraterrestrials from other planets came here and taught our early ancestors, you know, the ways of, of, of civilization by either pretending to be gods or just, you know, doing, you know, what they would and we just interpreted them as gods. Or it could be where you have remnants of an even earlier technological civilization that for one reason or another was destroyed or died or what have you, and that you had like these small groups of survivors that were scattered across the globe and then kind of uh, uh, restarted civilization from these locations. And, I mean, you know, Egypt, Malta, places in, you know, like in China, South America, places like that that seem to be like uh, seeds. That's, you know, that's really a good way to describe it. They're like seed points where civilization restarted and, and then spread across the globe. So, you know, I suppose it's a matter of interpretation whether or not, you know, if you believe in ancient astronauts or ancient aliens, you know, whether or not these seed points were brought about by visitors from other planets or, or if we're talking about remnants of a past civilization, you know, kind of uh, laying the groundwork for a new civilization. I'm not discounting the idea of ancient aliens or ancient astronauts. I think that is a good possibility, but possibly that was something that happened a lot further back than some of these more, and I say modern, and when I mean modern, I mean, you know, just right after the Ice Age, <laughs> the last Ice Age. But, you know, I do think that, that that we have been visited, you know, in the past and, and probably still are by ancient aliens. I just think that some of these places like Malta that you were referring to could actually be starting points or restarting points of 
survivors of a past, but now, you know, destroyed uh, uh, technological civilization. <laughs> Hell yeah, man. I'm right there with you. And man, Tim, I could do this all day, but that pretty much does bring us to the finish line. The world is full of weirdness and you are doing your damnedest to tell the people about it. I love it. Let them know where they can get more Tim Swartz in their life. Definitely. Well, you know, if you want to read any of my books, all you have to do is just uh, go to Amazon, type in Tim R. Swartz, S-W-A-R-T-Z, and every book I think that I've ever been involved with will show up. Uh, my, my website is conspiracyjournal.com. Uh, at that location, you can subscribe to my free email newsletter. Uh, it comes out once a week. It's an aggregate of all the weird stories that uh, I've run across or have been sent to me by my many stringers throughout the world. Uh, you can uh, get it by, by email or through you know, the uh, RSS feeds. And uh, um, it's uh, all the strange and weird news that they don't want you to know. <laughs> love it man very cool well it's been a real pleasure for me thanks so much for being here and keep fighting the good fight out there thank you greg it's been a pleasure to be with you today you got it all right all right people going back to that good old nonpartisan weird stuff 101 big thanks to tim he's been in the game for a long time probably responsible for introducing me to more than a couple things over the years if you didn't like this one, you are too fucking serious. <laughs> nah, I don't care. You can not like this one if you want to, but I thought it was good fun. These are some of my favorite areas of speculation. Inner Earth stuff, Antarctica stuff, that description of the caves in Malta. And I would love, actually, to visit that area of the world. I've been thinking about this a lot lately, and I got really the perfect trip. I think the move is to fly into Portugal, where the drugs are legal, just to get the vacation started. Then you're so close to Spain. Go over to the coast, where I hear the weather makes it Europe, San Diego. Then you fly across that water, so picturesque. Have a few glasses of wine, and you arrive in Rome. You do Rome for a few days. You see that Colosseum, and you are so close to Malta. You hop over. You check those caves. You holler in that wall hole. Then, ladies and gentlemen, you go to Egypt, because it's not far. And when you got to get home, you're flight out of Europe. It leaves from Greece. So you make that Egypt-Greece trip and you think about the old days. Huh? <laughs> I think that's a great two weeks. And if anybody's free this fall, let's start the Higher Side Travel Group. And if it goes well, our next journey will be to find those poles, ladies and gentlemen, just to see. Antarctica, you know, it's always on my mind and it's, this is a little something to add to the pile along with cliff high from a few weeks back so i'm a happy man if you listen to the show regularly you know that every show is actually two hours and i put the first hour out for free hoping that you'll like it hoping that you'll think man this guy does phenomenal interviews and i just don't know what my life would be like if i didn't have this great show and this great resource of amazing authors, lecturers, and researchers of the most fringe topics known to man, what would I do? Well, a show without corporate sponsors needs support. Sign up for the Higher Side Chats Plus, $5 a month. Get those five full two-hour shows. Plus some other things like lifetime forum access and downloads of the music I play on the show. TheHigherSideChatsPlus.com. Think about it. 
That's all I'm going to say. In this episode, that second hour, we get into the Tesla group that was tasked with building a ship to get to Mars, responding to a call from Martian channelers. We got more insights from Dr. Judy Lockwood. We talked the Philadelphia Experiment, Al Bielik, and the Montauk Project had to get into those stories due to Tim's proximity to a lot of the major figures in them. And we talked about Tim's latest stuff, like time travel and time slip stories, the hidden agenda of the ultra-terrestrials, and of course, Morgellons, Red Mercury Plagues, and the Deep State. Everything you could want and more. You could say, this show is like... A Tomahawk missile strike, folks, because it covers a lot of ground. Come on over to Plus. There's plenty of sign-up options. I try to make it easy. I just hope you'll meet me in the middle if you like the show that I do. But thanks for listening anyway. Everybody, that's it. I've done my part. Your move, Hollow Earth hiders, inner Earth entities, and Antarctic aliens. Your fucking move. Oh, no. You see, the world isn't random, it's attached to puppet strings, control over everything. The nine to five is trying to steal ya, now don't that job seem silly? Hello, can you hear me? Or should I play back? Some spike agency Wish we were younger And free I'll be thankful When it's all exposed The vast conspiracy There's such a difference Between us And the damn It's doubling your time.